Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your uh, almost weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle to people that make it and occasionally ourselves. Uh, we're trying this again. This is uh, episode 54. Explain why we're trying it again. April you say almost weekly. What happened? Yeah, so we did record an episode last week. Uh, <laughs> but we, what we happened, We recorded Camille? this episode. Yeah. Um, we uh, were all in different locations. Sure. We, uh, we could coordinate at a time. We agreed on it. We were running a little late, which is typical and fine. No problem. Uh, but we were using a new software. We're not going to say the name of the software because I can't blame the software for this. Apparently we can't. But the software required... That uh-huh. each of the people on this particular podcast bridge, myself, Camille Foster, Freethink Media, Michael Moynihan, national correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight, and a gentleman by the name of Matt Welch, who at the time was in Los Angeles and still is in Los Angeles. He is the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, which is why he can be any damn place on the planet and podcasting, except, except. when his computer's hard drive mm-hmm. runs out of space <laughs> mid-recording. Yeah, yeah. Which apparently, yeah. given this particular system, was one of several potential points of failure, but it was the point of failure. Matt, you were to blame for their not being oh. the Fifth Column podcast. I mean, week. it records locally on your computer as an uncompressed <laughs> file, because we like to give our listeners a good sound quality. Yeah, and then so, it sometimes. sometimes, sometimes. It depends on what, what Chad I mean, doing. you, by the way, on yeah. this one, sounded like you were uh, like doing a reshoot of <laughs> Dust Boot. It was like inside a submarine. And then Matt, who, you know, everything in Matt's life is from the 90s, including his computer, his musical <laughs> references, his film references. And it's like he's running this thing on a fucking Amiga. And we're like, oh, it's going to work. And then he, he cuts out in the middle. And we'd come to find out that, um, according to the software, who can actually detect this remotely, that Matt's computer, <laughs> which is a grayscale screen <laughs> and a dial-up, uh, he put the phone and the little cups in the modem, yeah. ran out of space. So thank you, Matt, for, for, for screwing that up. Appreciate <laughs> that, that. I had a couple of- modem noises, I got Matt? a couple of hot takes on that one and totally gone. Yeah. Totally gone. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a, it was great. Um, and the, there is half of the show, half of the we show. Half the show. So when so that's the second doing... lost episode. <laughs> we should splice that together <laughs> with the psycho is, this girl. This one is genuinely lost, as opposed yeah. to me just deciding, nope, and yeah. <laughs> no, nope. And I want to say that the that, psycho girl was only half the problem in the other lost uh, episode. Well, what was uh, the other problem, Matt? This, you, the psycho. <laughs> It's I had like, a feeling. I had a feeling you were going to wind up. Camille in my all social cues of uh, like yeah. uh, maybe let's not. Ex- he, was, he was doing the whole show is a French goodbye. Like we were standing <laughs> at the door, we're yeah. so ready to leave, and he's yeah. like, "Well, you know, I was I, I, I was don't trying to get self-identify more... as a black man." Like, no. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to get us more material that we could potentially cut around and create. Oh, that's a what show. you're doing. That's what I was going for. <laughs> but by the way, I thought of that um, last episode because I'll give a little, um, a little, uh, you know, it's kind of like that uh, that movie that Jerry Lewis did about the Holocaust that no one's ever seen. You know that? Oh, the day the clown. The cried? day the clown cried. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's a cut of it somewhere, but the one you know about the plot, and so I know because I wasn't there for that episode. I know that you were basically saying that I can't remember the context. You you can tell me uh, in which your opponent said. You know, name me a a black 
a nationalist or a national, Nation of Islam guy who's ever gone around and shot things up. Mm-hmm. And I, when you told me this, I said I was like the zebra killings and mm-hmm. so there's a bunch of things. But then, since then, yeah. there was the guy in uh, California. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was an NOI guy. And you know, did not I, make many headlines. Did not make many he headlines. Like, what that three, four, four people? people? Yeah. Um, and I saw that, and I went on his uh, YouTube page, and he had all these uh, Nation of Islam things. Yeah. And he uh, a explicitly... bunch of amateur rap videos. <laughs> yeah, which are great. Yeah. No, they were not great. They were <laughs> the opposite of great. They were exactly what you would expect from a uh, lunatic, yeah. racist serial killer. Yeah. That's precisely what and you he had would expect. Really bad on his head. But yes. um, but yeah. So I thought of that. Is last it an ankh ep- or an unk? I don't know. I'm not. I think it's I'm an from unk. Massachusetts. What do you think? Yeah. I'm Egyptian? Well, someone will um, tell us. <laughs> so, we'll call Erica Badu. Yeah, I'll call Erica Badu in, in Brooklyn. Yeah. And she's probably like taking her clothes off in the neighborhood and like filming a video. Do you have a problem with that? I mean, I don't, but Good. I'm just saying that's what she does. Good. This is true. So anyway, I thought about that the other day, and that was, that was pretty great. So yeah, yeah. I just think we should maybe take a few selections mm-hmm. from that, like, you know, one minute, like, DVD extras. Yeah. And, like, drop mm-hmm. them out, especially when we have... Technical problems because Matt Welch is yeah. like living in the 19th century and refuses <laughs> to get like a new computer. It's unbelievable to me. Can't reason now, can buy a computer? Just, just to, uh, Can't to, the Koch uh, brothers the buy on... a new computer? <laughs> oh, this, this is a, a refutation of the Koch conspiracy. Matt's computer. <laughs> my computer. So I'm in the backyard of my dad's house in Long Beach, which hopefully the whole back half of the show we can talk about. The uh, things that I have found in closets uh, during my stay here. Um, <laughs> it's another but, last episode. Uh, imagine that I um, all of my weird uh, tics uh, have at least somewhat a genetic or cultural uh, kind of antecedent. Uh, whether nature or nurture, um, there are similarities with my elders. And so uh, not only am I uh, sitting outside in Long Beach with my uh, uh, jury-rigged uh, 1990s computer, but itself is plugged into one of those old-timey, really long orange oh, yeah. extension cords, sure. except that the <laughs> cabling of the cord is off, and so there's a lot of exposed wires. And then that thing is sneaking into a garage door that can't completely shut, and then uh, plugging into some uh, electrical outlet that was uh, fashioned, I think, in 1966. So what you're saying is that the technical screw-ups that uh, that were computer based on the last episode might this time actually burn the house down and we'll just keep talking. <laughs> is that okay? This this is the hope. Okay, uh, we'll great. finally get a Viking funeral for uh, for all involved. <laughs> okay, great. Well, well, perhaps we can uh, embark on a journey into the uh, the news cycle, the various things that are happening in the world, and and I am expecting total chaos and, and calamity this this program because we have a great deal to catch up on. There is much happening in the world. And I don't even know that we're going to touch on any of the foreign policy stuff, um, despite the fact that uh, most of what's being talked about right now is the uh, the first hundred days of the Trump administration. Um, uh, folks are looking back, reminiscing uh, about all the good times, all the high moments, uh, the uh, the friendly soiree with uh, Vladimir Putin when he finally took power here in the United States, renamed uh, Washington, D.C., New Moscow. Um, and uh, <laughs> Moscow made, and the Potomac made Russian the official language of the United States of America. We, uh, there, we, there was some, there was some fear and trepidation in the beginning, but I think we're all embracing it. Um, but that didn't happen. Uh, instead, however, we have seen a lot of action come out of the uh, Trump administration. At least energy expended on uh, issues like trade, uh, healthcare, and tax reform. Uh, immigration. And right now there is the uh, the looming possibility or maybe not of a government shutdown 
Um, we uh, have seen all sorts of stuff spin up, gentlemen. I wonder, I mean, is there anything that stands out to you guys, just broadly speaking, uh, with respect to the, the last hundred days? Like, what is the, uh, the moment, uh, if anything, um, that, uh, that is at the forefront of your mind when you think about the, the Trump administration and how you would uh, characterize for me, I, I would say that uh, it's the occasional quote, and someone on Twitter uh, collated and decorated uh, uh, three or four of them the other day of when Trump said, uh, uh, oh, uh, after talking you know, with the Chinese prime minister for 10 minutes about uh, foreign currency manipulation, I realized it was more complicated than I ever expected. Or, oh, I, I didn't realize that uh, health care reform was, was this complicated. Yeah, who, who knew? Uh, uh, who knew? Uh, so it's this learning curve stuff. Uh, that you see the, the way it ties in to kind of today's or this week's news is that, you know, a president in, in our system can do a lot on his own or can try to do a lot on his own, certainly uh, in the, uh, the realms of foreign policy, especially. But in general, we have a much more presidential system than even our Constitution uh, suggests. Um, but you still need Congress for a big heave. And so today we saw the unveiling of uh, the Trump administration's tax reform uh, package, which is interesting in a lot of levels, cuts the corporate tax rate from 35 to 15 uh, percent. It gets rid of territorial taxation, which is really kind of a great move. Um, and, uh, you know, I like uh, cutting taxes and all that kind of stuff. And it's also uh, it is completely designed to continue in uh, the ongoing project to maximally humiliate Paul Ryan. Um, and this is where it's kind of uh, symbolic of the first hundred days in that the Trump administration has no real uh, strategy or noticeable strategy um, or, or track record of dealing with uh, Congress uh, in any kind of legislative package. They're, he's baffled. They stumbled from the first Obamacare uh, rollout, which is Paul Ryan's debacle very much. So they're going now to tax reform uh, in which. The stuff that Paul Ryan and also Kevin Brady, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, they've been working on this, actually. I mean, not as well as they should have, but they've been tinkering with this stuff for the last year. And what the Trump administration proposed today um, undercuts a lot of that work. Some of it, thankfully so, because uh, Paul Ryan is the one who really thinks the border adjustment tax is a great idea, which is a tariff. and uh, Tariffs are bad ideas. Uh, so I'm glad to see them kind of shelve that for the moment. But the way they came out today, it's like, oh, we're just going to tell you what what our view of uh, tax reform is uh, in a way where uh, a whole bunch of it is just never going to happen, including, by the way, the three of us would have to move out of New York if it was passed as uh, as suggested today. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, they said they're going to get rid of most all deductions, including the deduction uh, for state and local taxes from your yeah. federal income taxes. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, which no, is no problem. With like, that. That's fine. That's like, no, I mean, on principle, I think that's totally great. In practice, all three of us are paying a hell of a lot more taxes than we do already. And we're yeah. not uh, shy on paying taxes uh, at the moment. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's our... been the, in living in this city is, is punishing. And, you know, I have done the math on what I would save if I went to New Jersey and then realized that I would have to live in New Jersey. <laughs> um, I mean, mostly the tax, the tax is actually the uh, tunnels getting back into the city if, or, you know, leaving, you know, if you spend the night late and have a few drinks and you want to go home in a nice Uber, uh, you know, add, add 15 bucks to that because uh, that's what it costs to get uh, through uh, the or get into the city in the Holland Tunnel. But you get charged that either, either way. So, and no, but, they have the highest property taxes in the country. Uh, is Jersey have the highest property taxes? I believe so. It doesn't yeah. matter. I'd be renting. Um, so, but on the, on the 100 days, you know, 
I feel a little, I'm slightly annoyed at our friend Eli Lake for one, one reason, is he preempted me on, I read a column the other day, that um, I had been arguing, um, and I talked to a friend of mine who definitely has p- different political views uh, than I do, and uh, a reporter who, who made much the same argument. And on a few points, the first 100 days were, you know, this is a pretty standard, bog-standard Republican. Right. You have, out of the gate, you have a very Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, uh, uh, you know, approach for a couple of weeks, a couple of failed executive orders and judges intervening. And you have you, of course, have Trump himself saying blaming the unelected judges. He did the same thing again uh, today, obviously mm-hmm. on a different on a different front, but but the same rhetoric. Um, but after that, you have a really kind of standard Republican that you could have seen from any of the other Republicans in the race. I mean, that includes somebody like Jeb Bush. You know, low energy Jeb would have, I imagine, done the same thing on Syria, um, probably would have done something very similar. As, on North as with Korea. the Democratic presidential candidate. Yeah, exactly. As, as with the Democratic president. I take that as a given with yeah. Clinton. <laughs> um, so in foreign policy, the disappointments that you see um, are pretty, pretty stark from from his old kind of Bannonite. Um, and you see there was a thing amongst all these kind of alt-writers uh, posting a Bannon 2020 uh, campaign thing on uh, Facebook I saw coming up as oh, this God. reaction to 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 Trump's uh, foreign policy stuff. And I think on the biggest thing, we've talked a lot about this, uh, this on this show, and particularly the Russia stuff, right? The mania surrounding Russia, that as this thing kind of retreats in the background, by the way, and you do, you're seeing less of it in the media, because when you realize that the linchpin of this is a bumbling halfwit named Carter Page, who the FSB was making fun of when they were trying to recruit him in 2013, by mm-hmm. the way, long before Donald Trump was... It's playing was, the long game. Yeah, he's playing the long game, right? It doesn't that's, matter that's who. you do the real estate transaction in 2008. Yeah, exactly. Keep, Just amazing. Keep him along. <laughs> this man has yeah. the potential to be president. That's yeah. what everyone thought. Sure. The country's so. going to be dumb enough to elect this guy. Yeah. Apparently we're going to. Um, that You know, these people, that's why you have this language. And I've been pointing this out. I think Camille pointed this out, too, is that when you say Trump associates, you don't say people in the mm. staffers campaign. And that encompasses three people that were fired. Right. And we've said this a million times. Paul Manafort, Roger Stone and Carter Page, two of which we don't even know how close they actually were to Trump. And that's particularly Roger Stone and obviously Paul Manafort since running the campaign and Carter Page, who is a nobody, who is a nobody. And he's a halfwit. And he's you see his interviews and he's a bumbling uh, doofus. Right. And that's the connection, right? And we know that the FISA warrants because of him. Eli wrote a column uh, which is had the core of it with something I wanted to say about the first 100 days with, with Trump and Russia is that this turn towards Russia, this softening, never happened, right? Yep. Could it happen? Of course it could happen. Right now, sanctions is still in place. The attack on Syria, which very much angered Sergei Lavrov and the foreign ministry in Russia – uh, and the point that I was kind of building to that Eli got to uh, was that who is the bad guy of those two people in that part of the world, which has been a long time back and forth. We you know, had an opening to China with Richard Nixon and in the, in the early 1970s because there was a, a very, very difficult relationship between Moscow and Peking. Right. So we exploited that and Kissinger exploited that. And, the, you know, the, the, the Soviets hated uh, Maoism in the 60s, et cetera. We're doing much the same thing because the beginning of this uh, campaign 
What was all the stuff? Currency manipulation from China. Yeah. There are enemy, the Taiwan call. Doesn't matter who, who initiated the call. All of this stuff, these guys are bad. We're going to sink their economy by, by putting up all these tariffs, et cetera. Now, Trump is actually being incredibly generous to China, saying they're being very help, helpful on North Korea. They're not currency manipulators and saying, I can uh, work with Xi Jinping. I mean, this is a huge, you know, uh, about, about face, right? And so, on the other hand, Russia seems to be getting – it's exactly the opposite of what we've been talking about in the lead up into to, to Trump um, taking office. That's the most stunning thing for me for the first 100 days is the kind of getting closer to China because it's useful and because we need them. Mm-hmm. No major tariffs, no currency manipulator nonsense, and, um, you know, saying thanks, guys, on North Korea. And, you know, he says, like, oh, by the way, they're great. They're great. I had a great conversation with him, you know, over, uh, you know, uh, I I think he wasn't the chocolate cake one. That was actually the military strike. But, you know, I had a great conversation with him, Mar-a-Lago. He explained a lot to me me that I didn't know. And, like, wait, what's going on here? This is the reverse of what we've been talking about. You were saying. On the the major uh, uh, tariffs stuff. It is worth pointing out that uh, Politico reported today, uh-huh. uh, citing two White House officials, that yeah. there has been a draft uh, mm-hmm. written by uh, uh, Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon, oh, God, who are Peter the Navarro. two most kind of mercantilist yeah. people in the White House. There's been a draft memo. Did you memo. say mercantilist? Is that yeah, how you sure pronounce it? Mercant- yeah. Mercantilist? Wait, uh, mercantilism. Mercantilist. Yeah, mercantilist. I, I, you know, That's it's fine. like clitoris, saying... clitoris. I think it's, uh, it's, yeah, same difference. Yeah, exactly. Penis. Ricar- same thing. Yeah, we're talking it's about fine. Ricardo, Evensler. <laughs> it's all the same. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes. That they're, they're going to withdraw from, from NAFTA, yes. the North America Free Trade Agreement, which is would be kind of a huge deal. And we're having some low-grade lumber war with Canada. So uh, one of the single biggest worries about a Trump presidency. And keep in mind that he got us out of the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, mm-hmm. um, That's true. which we were set to join at the, at the outset of this presidency. So that really bad shoe might be dropped. But the fact also that it's the two, those two guys who wrote the first draft suggest that there might be some other people what, who will have different in, input in, on it. Yeah, and, and just to be clear on this, is that I don't think this is the end of the road in any way. I think that, that there is a lot of dramatic stuff that we expected to happen almost immediately executive orders, et cetera, and really pushing through, you know, this kind of border adjustment tax. I mean, you see this 10%, 15% tariff on, you know, Canadian soft lumber coming in. But these things have actually been going on in the exact same way for 20 years, uh, especially with Canada and lumber. I mean, this is, this is a very kind of routine thing. Um, I am worried of who is writing this kind of Stuff. I mean, uh, Bannon is uh, the, actually the lesser of those two evils, actually. Well, um, I, when I saw the story, I thought Navarro to myself, is a disaster. Well, when I saw the story yeah. I, and I saw um, Navarro and Bannon, I thought to myself, well, I, I wonder if this is one of those situations where Bannon or some Bannon ally decides, you know, what we'll do is le- we'll leak this so that people know that you're working on stuff. You haven't yeah. been pushed to the margins and you're not sure. you're no longer important. Or is it some sort of Bannon opponent who says, we'll leak this. Yeah. He'll look crazy. Yeah. And people won't want him in the White House anymore. Uh, One cannot know. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, th- to, I think to, the, to former, the former is more puzzled than the latter because, I mean, to a lot of Trump voters and, you know, a lot of sort of ordinary Americans, which is feelings, politics and not ideological – that stuff kind of feels right. And to a lot of Democrats as well. I mean, Democrats have Democrats long sure. been trying to do various things to change NAFTA. In fact, this is one of the places where Donald, one of the many places where Donald Trump changed perspectives during the election. But at some point during the election, seemed to walk back his earlier criticisms of NAFTA 
uh, as as you gentlemen were just mentioning, we thought that we might be facing a potential trade war with China. Yeah, um, we seem to be moving closer to China. China uh, things are yeah. fine with China. Yeah, uh, but which NAFTA is, is a which is a good thing uh, right now. And and you know, I don't um, like cozying up in any way to hideous dictatorships like uh, the Chinese dictatorship. You got a problem but, with that? Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, to your point about about sort of liberals and, enjoying or kind of people of the left enjoying this these sorts of Donald Trump policies, I have seen this close up recently. And I think I might have talked about it on this show or the last episode um, of people who we think of Bernie Sanders supporters because of where we live and how we live and who we live around. Sure. We think of the kind of, you know, wooly hippie types you know, that have, uh, you know, Birkenstock clogs on and like are, are buying quinoa and have houses in new pulse. That makes sense to some people here. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the people that I talked to I just recently in this past month doing a story is that they're all kind of, you know, guys that, uh, you know, you they look like Donald Trump voters and everyone almost to a man said I wouldn't have voted for him if uh, if Hillary Clinton hadn't stole the primary. Because <laughs> they believe the Trump line about this, by the way, and they believe kind of a bit of the Sanders line. And Sanders himself hasn't, uh-huh. hasn't said this, but a lot of the Sanders people do. But they were Sanders supporters. And the corollary, you see, this is not just an American thing. You know, Mélenchon in France, the leftist candidate. Uh, where's Matt's, like, being invaded? Are you in North Still. Korea now? Are you in Pyongyang? Long Beach. Yeah, same Lions, same thing. The, the Pyongyang. I'm in the bunker. Of, it's fine. Uh, I'll be protected California. as long as they're using uh, low-grade ordnance. <laughs> <laughs> but this quick point, this Melanchon, who is the, the Castro-Chavez-loving candidate, who did quite well but didn't get through the runoff in the French election, all of the other people, including Francois Fillon, who's the kind of conservative that was trying to be a little more hard right on immigration issues, all of them said, do not vote for Le Pen and Front National. It's a bad idea. It's bad for X, Y, and Z reasons. Mélenchon, the leftist candidate and a hard left candidate, yeah. did not say that. Yeah. He said something, you know, kind of mealy-mouthed, abstain or don't go. But he did not say vote for, you know, because these are a lot of natural Le Pen voters who aren't kind of liberation reading, humanité reading people in the cities, they're like farmers, factory workers, et cetera, that like the left wing guy. And they're like, all right, now we're going to go to to Le Pen. I mean, she's not going to shore up enough people to actually win that runoff. But, you know, it's we have to stop thinking of of, of people uh, that vote for or wanted Bernie Sanders to win as only kind of our peers in cities. Well, well, another thing that was supposed to happen in the first hundred days was the uh, repeal and replace of, of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening. But, Matt, uh, there have seem to be developments with this uh, Freedom Caucus organization, uh, which has apparently, via statement I learned today, uh, that they are uh, prepared to endorse this new version of the uh, Affordable Care Act repeal and replace uh what the hell is going on, Matt? Have you talked to anyone? Do you do you have some sense of what's happening, or you you just are you trapped in a closet in Long Beach and you just don't have here any, here any in Long Beach? I got my 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 thumb on mm. the uh, on the pulse of the Freedom Caucus. Wow! Uh, every day is a is a is a caucus full of freedom. Here. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> in, that in is Long gross. Beach. Can we cut that in post? <laughs> no, we're gonna we're nope. gonna lead. Nope. Can you uh, can you mark that? Um, yeah, gonna mark that. Too yeah. late. Too late for all that. Um, no, uh, what I've thought from the beginning on this is that um, so he would give he being uh, Trump in this uh, case, he give Paul Ryan his his one shot. Hopefully Ryan would completely humiliate himself, which he did. And so now Paul Ryan's out of the deal. And so who had the whip hand coming out of that, even though um, Trump was 
was uh, criti very critical of them. It's like, all right, Freedom Caucus, you want yours? Okay, we'll give you yours. So now they'll go and run it up the flagpole. I presume that they will uh, have run into resistance from the Tuesday Club or whatever the name of the Republican moderates are there. Um, but still, it might pass the House. This will focus all of our attention uh, onto the actual problem, uh, political problem of uh, the AHCA, whether 1.0 or 2.0, which is that it can't pass the Senate. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's only a four seat Republican majority in the Senate. And if you think there's some dysfunction in the House, which, of course, there is. Yeah. Um, imagine to we get to the place where, you know, Rand Paul sits next to John McCain. Yeah. And they don't spend a lot of time agreeing with one another about most anything, um, let alone uh, health care reform. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I imagine that they can get enough kind of let's do some waivers here. And I, and I think they're they feel some political pressure to show that they're willing to negotiate or play nice. Um, and, uh, and I think Trump did enough flattering to them, a mixture of flattering and criticism of them that they felt like they needed to do something. I doubt you're going to get Justin Amash or Thomas Massey or a, or the more hardcore ones to vote for a system that if you believe Peter Sudeman's writing on reason, and that's kind of where the, my first stop of, uh, of getting this stuff, I, it just they've given up now on uh, actually kind of repealing and substantively replacing Obamacare. They're keeping a lot of the fundamental things in and then building a, a kind of a complicated series of state level waivers on bits of it. And that, then they hope to declare victory and go home. I think that they won't get um, they won't get your Mike Lee, your Rand Paul uh, people on board. Or if they get those guys on board, then they won't get John McCain and Lindsey Graham. Um, there's just Republicans are not built for governance. Um, uh, and and uh, and this week and this month and this presidency is really geared to show us that because we're going to have a fake government shutdown for maybe three hours on Friday night or Saturday morning, um, totally avoidable. You know, Republicans have run both houses in Congress since uh, the election in 2014. Uh, if they were just doing their normal job, we wouldn't have this series of uh, self-made artificially imposed deadlines and crises, but that's just how they, it's easier to do that. If you don't vote on things, uh, then you don't have a record that can be run against, uh, by some upstart incumbent. And so it's the chief incentive for all these bastards is just to, uh, make strident, loud politics that you're against the system and then design the system so that you don't, it doesn't do anything except get you to a single must pass bill because otherwise you know, we're going to we're going to kill the veterans um, and kill our troops. Uh, then we'll have to, to pass that without anybody reading it. Um, that's just kind of what the, the dysfunction is. Like it's baked into the system now. So um, uh, the the silver lining in all of this is that it might be we might be done, at least with these two uh, uh, political parties, with ever doing anything big. Um, and that's good because things that are big are usually bad. Um, but even fixing the big things that are bad might be impossible because they're just not set up to govern well, uh, the bastards. Well, I think what you're referring to there, Matt, is the uh, continuing resolution, which is uh, initially it seemed that in the continuing resolution is the funding mechanism that we have at our disposal because we don't really do things the, the old way anymore. Um, we just use these things at, a, at an incremental uh, on an incremental basis, uh, continuing to keep the government alive, uh, feeding programs that require uh, authorization for funding to be released. Um, but in this particular case, we actually thought that the shutdown might happen as a consequence of the border wall, the funding for the border wall 
um, which uh, the Republicans were talking about uh, sort of forcing Democrats to go along with by tying it to the continuing resolution. And they've actually had a dozen different things that they thought about tying to the continuing resolution. Uh, At this point now, it looks like the Obamacare uh, insurer subsidies uh, might be might be bound to that. Um, although I don't know, maybe they've they've decided to change it to something else in the last fifteen months. And in any case, um, the 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 calamity, the the insan the insanity, the all of the various things that are happening uh, in Washington will continue. Um, the one other place where I wanted to go um, with respect to the last hundred days is immigration policy, um, and there are two uh, developments that have uh, brought the Trump administration at odds with the courts again, uh, the first of which is the uh, immigration, the immigration restrictions, uh, the otherwise known as a Muslim ban uh, that the Trump administration tried to enact the first time, then tried to enact the second time. Uh, and then they had some, some so-called judge in the Pacific decide that this wasn't a good idea. So he put a stop to that. Um, and more recently, there was the Trump administration's attempt to try and take money away from sanctuary cities, uh, which another judge has set set forward and said, uh, yeah, this isn't going to fly. Uh, you guys don't have authorization on a number of different bases um, and uh, has also put a stop to that. So the Trump so Donald Trump today uh, suggested that he would uh, see these see these judges, the Supreme Court, which is not technically accurate, um, but. Uh, again, frequent dust-ups with the courts. I don't know if if we have uh, any additional thoughts one, on that. Or one thought on. on that is that, you know, you routinely, if you talk to people that supported Donald Trump and they do bring up immigration, a lot of them do, and a lot of them do in the context of jobs in saying that, you know, yeah, we're worried about our, our, our jobs going to Mexico. We're also worried about Mexicans coming here and, you know, getting lower wages and putting us out of our nice, cushy uh, union jobs. Um, there, It's very hard for politicians and for people that are broadly pro-immigration to combat these arguments because they're not arguments of ideology. They're not arguments of political philosophy. They're also arguments of feelings, as I was talking about, the sort of feelings voters for Donald Trump. And one of the main things here is it's very hard to combat the argument that something is against the law, right? I mean, I have an argument against this and saying like, well, Yes and no. I have, you know, it's it's a complicated response, but the complication is of no interest to the average Trump voter is that, look, what I'm saying when I go and make this, when he says he makes this crazy speech, yeah, he might do it in this kind of ham-handed way and he might do it with this kind of, you know, profanity that you would expect from Donald Trump on the campaign trail. But what we're essentially talking about is enforcing border security and enforcing the law, sanctuary cities. And again, I'm just giving you the argument that I've, hear, I've heard so many times talking to people on why they voted for Donald Trump and what's their issue. Most of them aren't ideological. And again, they're mostly people who do this sure. by feeling. And they, the idea of a sanctuary city is so counter to logic to them is that not only are we not enforcing laws when it comes to borders, and again, this is their argument, is that we're actually rewarding people that are uh, lawbreakers. And that's how they see it, as lawbreakers, and that's it. So when Bernie Sanders talks about free college, it's very hard to get Bernie Sanders' young voters to go the next two or three or four steps to figure out how this free college is going to be paid for. All of these goodies and all of these unicorns are going to be paid for. The Donald Trump well, the version... Rich, the rich will pay their fair share. Well, exactly. All the, all the explanation you Yeah, need. I mean, you don't actually need to do, uh, you know, 
a profit and loss kind of T-chart here to do it. He's like, no, 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 we'll just take it from no, the rich. Fine. That's fine. They'll, yeah. they'll, that'll cover everything. Facts. facts um, are, yeah. and, and so the version of that for, for, for Trump voters of that, that, you know, is a, a bit of logic to them that makes sense. And, you know, I get their argument. I, I disagree with them on a, on a number of fundamental things. I, I'm generally pro-immigration. To tell them, no... We shouldn't, you know, put a wall up or enforce border security. We do enforce all this stuff, which is the kind of myth is this binary that either Donald Trump's plan goes through or we have this free flow of people back and forth, which isn't true. Uh, but the sanctuary city one is a very, very hard one uh, for people who, who, who support that policy to make an argument for, because the emotional response to that is why are we rewarding and giving sanctuary to people that are breaking the law? It's a pretty straightforward well, argument. What it is one of the worst uh, uh, phrases in terms of usefulness politically of it. Uh, I mean, a lot of the origin of the phrase had to do with people uh, fleeing the Central American uh, civil wars of the nineteen eighties, and uh, which is a completely different thing than oh. We're going to shield. Did you did you just rape a white woman? Okay, come here. We'll shield you. That's um, you yeah. know it's. That's that's what so people hear B and not uh, and not A. Uh, in fact, what it, it, it just is, it's information sharing. I mean, there's a reason why Rudy Giuliani in 1995 warned the Republican Party about how it uh, should resist the temptation to become the modern day know nothing party, because in his view, as mayor of New York, if you are turning the local police force and also all local uh, kind of governmental people, people work at the city hospitals or county hospitals, um, uh, people work at the schools. If you turn them all into uh, informants and information sharers with the uh, federal immigration authorities, you're going to see uh, a, a gray market population go completely black market, uh, and that includes kids. You're not going to be able to find out what happens uh, on murders. No one's going to want to talk to the cops. There's going to be entire uh, places that will move from being semi in the shadows, but you know, functional to completely terrified uh, of ever dealing with authority, and that's just not a way to run a, a big city. Um, uh, so it's a it's a different argument, but that is a really uh, bad term. Another bad term in immigration discussions is one that uh, some of my uh, fellow libertarians have used over the years and and tried to sort of champion. I think almost in a same way of like a claiming reclaiming the word queer out and proud kind of thing but uh saying that they're open borders i think that is really a uh, an unhelpful uh phrase maybe it's because i'm i functionally i that does not describe my own beliefs i don't think that um every single person uh should be able to come into this country without anybody uh, paying any attention to them or worrying about where they're going i don't i just don't see that as a practical way to uh to run a country. I wish it was more like that, but I, I don't see how you get there. And, and, and more to the point, there's nobody within miles of political power who has ever advocated for such a thing. No. And yet uh, people like me uh, who are in favor of expanding the number of legal immigrant visas um, are uh, constantly being hit uh, and called uh, open borders fanatics uh, by people. Uh, we don't have a border, um, you know, uh, that talking like Bill Clinton did in 95 or Donald Trump does this year. Um, and I think it's uh, it's unhelpful. What we have is a prohibition problem. Yes, Moynihan, yeah. uh, you're yeah. absolutely right that 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 it's there's a, a core law breaking ar uh, argument there, and it is persuasive. 
Um, and then there's two follow-ups. One is like, if you want them just to get in line, that process, because we don't have enough legal visas, can take as long as 20 years if you're from the wrong country. Um, so it sucks. And also the executive order, of course, screwed those people over. And that's that, uh, exactly strongest. Yeah, another thing um, the Trump administration has been making uh, more, more difficult uh, is even bringing skilled immigrant labor to this country, which is uh, a bit surprising. I would have thought that there would be more pushback, especially from a lot of the uh, technology community folks who yeah. are, um, if not aligned with the Trump administration, have at least been actively engaged with them and talking to them. Peter Thiel, for example, was one of the that are prominent supporters to come forward um, and uh, and endorse Trump uh, around there's, the uh, the convention. It, it, well, there's a, there's been a lot of pushback on this, and the narrative has changed pretty considerably recently. And this is both on the left and the right. Is that it was always this conversation about having more H one B visas uh-huh. to get more skilled workers into places like Silicon Valley, so we could grow companies in the U S. with skill sets that we didn't have. I mean, if anyone watched sixty Minutes about two months ago, there was a piece on H one B visa abuse of uh, companies taking uh, Indian employees and saying that they're, um, you know, amazingly skilled and these are skill sets that Americans don't have and paying them basically subsistence wages and having the people uh, that were leaving those jobs train their replacements. And um, that is something that Donald Trump has picked up on, too, is that not only expanding H-1Bs and saying, yeah, you know, we actually need this because I'm a businessman, I understand business, and I want to, you know, we need to train our people, but in the meantime, stopgap measure, no, it's been the opposite of H-1Bs have been kind of the enemy. And to Matt's point about open borders, and again, I, the, the argument which you, Matt makes is a compelling one, and it's very, very hard to put to people, and it takes a long time, and, you know, there's a lot of things you have to clarify about this, but the open borders thing and people who make that argument – um, also, tend, especially if you were not on, on like sort of rock ribbed ideological libertarian who believes this sort of Philippe Legrand, I don't know this guy who wrote this kind of book on open borders, is that the hard thing about that is that when people talk about American health care, they say the same thing over and over again. They say, well, you know, there are no countries in the industrialized world that don't have. I mean, we've all heard this argument a million times. Yeah. And it might be Guinea-Bissau or something that doesn't have one. Or India, actually, I don't think has a has a, um, a nationalized health system or a state health system in some ways. The version of that for immigration is when people make that argument. I mean, it is also worth pointing out that immigration law around the world is routinely much tougher than U.S. immigration law. And I don't think if I went to the United, the United Kingdom and I have a three-month tourist visa and I decided because I wanted to stay for six months and I went to Heathrow or something or I you know, went to the NHS, people would, wouldn't have much sympathy for me in saying that, uh, no, you, know, you got you to gotta leave. And you know, England is a little softer than most, most countries. Uh, and there's also separate carve-outs in Europe for war refugees, Syrian refugees, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But try going to most countries um, walking across the border, even coming in through an airport and overstaying your visa, uh, the the ratting you out is is pretty common, actually. Um, we're um, pretty soft on these things. And I, to Matt's point, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, we are, as far as immigration goes, and this is actually a Trump argument, too, is that we are softer than a lot of people in the world. But there's not a country out there that really, with, and you say, well, European Union, Schengen Agreement, et cetera, <laughs> it's not the same thing, guys. But there are very few countries that are are tolerant uh, of their own borders being porous in any way. Well, there's a, a piece that I wanted to to push us in the direction of. Um, it's something that uh, that you guys brought to my attention a little earlier today, and and I've seen has actually been making the rounds. Um, but it uh, it's a piece exploring the the media bubbles uh, that that so many of us 
well, actually, the media bubbles that I, I guess dominate the media landscape, uh, the, the gist of which is something that we've actually talked about a little bit here on the podcast before. And this particular piece is by uh, Jake Schaefer. And uh, there was another name Jack. There. Did you just it's say Jack. Jake? Sorry. Sorry. Oh my I have God. Jake Tapper on the brain. Yeah. Jack Schaefer is our dear friend, Jack Schaefer. He's great. And, Ch- and Tucker Doherty. Uh, and this is um, the, the title of the article at Politico is The Media Bubble is Worse Than We Than You Think. Uh, Perhaps worse than we think as well, Um, or perhaps not. Maybe we think it's pretty bad. Uh, But in either case, um, what he really does is just actually crunch the numbers rather than sort of theorize um, and uh, just speculate about what's happening. Uh, Crunches the numbers and takes a look at where, um, in fact, media organizations are concentrated and actually looks at this relationship between technology um, and new innovation uh, in the way that it is further concentrating uh, media publishing companies, the folks that actually make the news uh, in particular areas, namely on the coasts, in the big cities. Um, and if they're not here in New York or Washington, D.C., maybe they're on the West Coast. A very small uh, number of them are in Chicago. Um, and there's virtually no one covering the rest of the country. And we've actually seen um, even technology companies make investment in products that were supposed to solve this problem, create like these local newspapers that, that would sort of patch? fill in the gaps, AOL patch, yeah. um, which, as it turns out, is just really, really expensive to do, to provide high-quality local news coverage um, of Gaithersburg, Maryland, and Pensacola, Florida is quite difficult. Yeah. Um, but what you actually get when you have that is people who are close to the closer to the ground, who are in these more ideologically diverse places, and they are covering news and connected to the sentiments of these local populations. Um, and I think what the article does a great job of highlighting, um, we can maybe grab some excerpts from this later, but, uh, but I want to get us into a discussion. But what it does a really great job of highlighting is the fact that this isn't sort of deliberate bias that's happening here. There is a natural expectation that if you are in a place like New York City, um, where we are, um, and you are talking about public policy public, um, in a public way, uh, that you are necessarily going to be in some way, shape, or form impacted by the perspectives of the people that are around you. Um, and it has a lot to do with sort of the various, the very subjective nature of the work that we do. Um, it's not so much that you aren't interested in facts, that you are interested in misrepresenting things, but it, in some cases, it is the questions that you are, you are inclined to ask, that you are allowed to ask without being ridiculed. Um, and uh, the perspectives that you're actually allowed to hold um, in some respects without being ridiculed, um, which we uh, may have something to say about that a little later. Uh, but in either case, um, I wanted to open this up to you guys because um, I know we all um, took a look at it. What did you see in here uh, that really stood out to you? Uh, I, can I, I, I'll say that I see what I have talked about in the show before. I said this to you before. So Michael Moynihan is right. We yeah, actually need, right. we actually yeah. need a bumper. Sorry, I need a, it just I'm right. Michael Moynihan <laughs> is right. I made. That probably uh, won't be it though. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a data version of an argument that I've made before. And the argument that I made before was that the way uh, journalism has changed and people who have listened to the show consistently, and we have a lot of them will remember <laughs> this argument that I've made a few times. Is that old thing that I've said a bunch that, you know, you used to go up the journalism ranks by, you know, working. I mean, a a really great get 
would be working for the Toledo Blade and doing, you know, uh, local city council meetings or something, because that was a good paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a smart paper, had great, uh, you know, sort of, you know, ink-stained wretches that worked there that could teach you a lot. And you would go up this, uh, this chain, right? I mean, some people ascended faster than others. And or you would go to, you know, a, a really small market paper, something in a even in a syndicate, a Gannett paper or something and do smaller coverage of, 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 of you know, school board meetings, et cetera. Uh, there's a problem that happened rather recently. And as Jack uh, points out in his piece, all of this happened in the past basically 10 years. He looks at data from like 2008 to today. And it is pretty astonishing. And what happens is. People, journalism now requires more people doing 24 hour jobs. You didn't, you know, you used to go to over to Langham, Langham's after you filed your copy at the Post and you drink with Steve Dunleavy at five because the paper was zipped off to the printing plant and you'd come and start again the next day. That cycle never ends now and it's constant, constant content. You do bigger stats for it. And at the same time, journalism is making less money, right? We can't monetize it just on on stupid banner ads and, 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 you know, this kind of keyword ads, et cetera. And people don't buy newspapers anymore. So there's the expectation that we should have more news faster and at a faster volume, and we should also have it for free, more or less. Now, some people are monetizing and doing okay, as the Washington Post has done recently mm-hmm. with Jeff Bezos' investment. It's been a very smart investment. New York Times is doing um, well, and a lot of that's been the kind of uh, wind at their back of Donald Trump and being adversarial. Sure. Uh, but by and large, uh, this stuff is trending in two directions that don't work together. So now you, how do you do this now? Well, how do you get pay a lot cheaper rates and get more content? You get 23-year-olds, you get 22-year-olds. And what do they know? This is the part that Jack, Jack doesn't talk about. It's harder to quantify. He's doing a, you know, a thing based on a very particular methodology with B- Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. And he's talking just about the clusters, right? And he makes some some assumptions about that and draws some conclusions. But one of the things that you can see clearly, and I think every listener will know this, when you go to Mike.com and Salon Infusion and these cesspools of hot takes and identity politics and everything, all of these people that write that stuff, always remember this, Google the people that do it and look at their LinkedIn pages. And you can always determine their age more or less by on their LinkedIn page when they graduated from college. You'll see 2014, 15, et cetera. And they come out of college newspapers in which these you know, identity politics battles are all they know. Yeah. There's no politics in a university other than Milo and Ann Coulter and you know uh, some student group that they don't think should have money because they have the wrong view of something. All of that gets ported over, and at the same time, nobody has money for these people to go out and report. It's very expensive to do that. So once you put an ass in the seat in New York City, there's the, the confirmation bias that envelops you of all these people and all these opinions that are all very, very uniform, and you sit in the seat and you just got out of college, which is you know, a very ideological uniform place for the most part, and someone says, all right, write me a piece for tomorrow. What is that piece? Well, there's a uh, trans character in this movie that is portrayed in such and such. There we go. And that's off to the races. And that's so much of this stuff. And you see even in the past, the New York Sun, which was that great sort of neoconservative experiment of starting a newspaper in 2002. One of their things was to do local uh, it was like we put New York on the front page was one of its first slogans because they were laughing at all these people that were coming in in New York and then getting on the New York desk and they didn't even know the city. 
But the thing that you realize now is because the way people consume media and the way we, we distribute and consume media is that there used to be people that just consume, consume local news. Their only newspaper would be the Concord Journal, where I grew up as a Concord Journal, or the regional county paper, or maybe the Boston Globe. And the first thing they'd turn to, if not the sports page, would be the metro section. And that was their news. There's a lot less of that now. There's a lot less. I mean, I don't know anyone in New York that knows who their city councilman is, who knows who their congressman is, for Christ's sake, or has any idea what's going on in local politics until it affects them and there's somebody building a high-rise next to them. Then they get the placards out and they whine about global uh, about gentrification. Other than that, local news is not like a thing, especially where we live, you know? Yeah. Uh, Matt, would, go ahead, Matt. Yeah. Um, I, I would add a, a couple of things. One is that um, I found the article uh, surprising and disturbing in uh, in the in how clustery the new um, uh, internet uh, journalism, which has surpassed uh, newspaper hiring, um, those I think those ships those streams crossed in two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, yet that stuff is even more concentrated in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. I mean, we kind of knew San Francisco because that's sort of where. The night and it was a '90s uh, reference for Michael. Um, it's where that 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 part of the dot com thing was happening. Yeah. But like one of the promises of this thing, and I used to follow this stuff pretty closely, looking for people to start making uh, kind of like uh, aggro five person local newspaper websites. I thought that would be the uh, you know just the the I once covered this guy named Jeffrey Davidian, who is a that's <coughs> investigator. A, that's a good last name there. Uh, uh, yeah, the Branch Davidian, uh, pain, <laughs> pain in the ass, uh, Armenian American guy who had, uh, I think he worked at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. So just a tabloid paper, uh, psycho. He was in, um, Putnam County, Tennessee for some reason and like got a speeding ticket and didn't like the way the cops treated him. And so started an online newspaper and actually they printed it out kind of like Politico in DC, um, called the Putnam pit. Um, just because he was pissed off at the local power structure and then just kind of uh, haunted their dreams and started making First Amendment uh, jurisprudence and investigating murders. It's all fascinating. I wrote about it for Salon.com back in the day. But I thought there'd be more of that, like just like pissed off individual muckrakers gone mad uh, or, you know, here's the these five conservatives in town who are sick of the local liberal rag um, and they're just going to cover the shit out of uh, local news because their their local broadsheet has stopped uh, caring about that. I mean, we've uh, I'm here in Southern California and we've been complaining since the 80s about how indifferent the LA Times has been to its own backyard. That has changed over years and they've done some pretty good stuff. But um, you know, it's they their ambitions and this is true uh, and some I've written about a lot over the years. The ambitions of most newspapers in the country is to be more like the New York Times without understanding that the New York Times is a very specific product of a very specific and specifically competitive newspaper environment in New York City. So you know that in New York, you're going to have the financial paper, which is the Wall Street Journal. You're going to have two competing, maybe three competing tabloids, one of them a suburban tabloid in the Post and the Snooze and the and Newsday. Uh, you're going to have the New York Sun for a little while. You're going to have the New York Observer, the Village Voice, all these different things. So, of course, it made sense to have one super kind of hoity-toity elite uh, internationally focused, arts community focused newspaper um, 
but because you knew that crime was being covered by the other guys uh, yeah. and, and other types of, of, of reporting would be done better elsewhere. So they specialize. But then every That's single true. L.A. Times, Santa Barbara News Press, Concord Journal, whatever the fuck you people call them up there, um, <laughs> they all wanted to be like the New York Times. And so they adopted many of the same kind of um, uh, values and, 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 and ethoses. Um, they all became like uh, as a group. There's a long backstory here that I won't bore you with, but uh, in the post-war kind of uh, a navel-gazing journalism world, uh, there was this thing called the Hutchins Commission, where they all basically sat around and, and, and concluded that the problem in America was William Randolph Hearst and all tabloid values. And I so thought you were going to bore us with it. Crime <laughs> in the same way, uh, and uh, and you know, with, uh, and so all these kind of values, and, and that turned off huge swaths of these captive audiences in these places who just felt alienated. And and those audiences were the ones that then got picked up first by talk radio, then by Fox News and cable more, more uh, generally, and then by the internet. Um, and so it all kind of mixes together uh, in this way where you have uh, a, an entire kind of half of the country that is alienated from its primary sources of news. Uh, that's been ongoing for many, many years. It's true. And now the newspapers yeah. themselves are dying and all these 23-year-olds are showing up in Brooklyn. And I'm just like, why not have the internet start off in Omaha? Uh, why doesn't that work? It's just, it's amazing. Well, because it, I mean, it, it, journalism, it, journalism attracts a certain type of person. I mean, the people who thinks that, they think that journalism is great in like a romantic His Girl Friday uh, kind of job, they also tend to come from a, a similar ideological background. Why that is, I'm not entirely sure. Sure. But Matt's point is actually an interesting one. One thing that he said when I wrote something about the Putnam Pit, which I remember, uh, for Salon. I mean, it is an almost tedious, obvious point at this at this stage in the kind of development of internet journalism. But do you remember when Salon was good? Hmm. And that's a they, it was really good. It had these great illustrations. Same guy who illustrated all these things. I remember Camille Polya writing all these pieces. Weirdly, David Horowitz used to write there. Uh, they used sure. to have a, a, a weird roster. And then someone determines that much like selling a tabloid. And having a good front page and a page three girl like you do in England, which is now gone, um, <laughs> lamenting it. Uh, you, those that, those clickbait headlines are 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 great, and it's like it's funny the economy that that has spurred beyond the clickbait headlines, and then things that, by the way, remember that disappeared. Upworthy, do you remember that was fucking it's, everywhere? It's still around. No, I know, but it was well, everywhere. Facebook changed their algorithm and oh, it totally God, tanked them. It. Which is which is sort of the other which is the other dynamic here that people often You're talk about. You're not going to believe. What this uh, autistic muppet <laughs> had to say, and it's literally a muppet with autism now. Yeah, and no, it's I like, understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just uh, you know, you, you weren't actually making fun of people with well, autism. Well, you know, this, not this time. Uh, Silicon Valley needs a kids' show too. Yeah. Um, so liber no one is no one is sympathetic. No, no. Yeah. Now libertarians have a have a character on Sesame Street they can sympathize with. <laughs> oh, <no>. um, <laughs> so um, not you, everyone with yeah. autism is libertarian. Yeah, but all but libertarians pretty much are most autistic. most libertarians. Just someplace on the yeah, spectrum. That was a knowing laugh, Matt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that click farm thing, the good thing about this is it has given us the great website Clickhole, um, which had a headline last week that made me laugh so hard. The, head, the headline was, will someone explain to me what Monsanto is so I can hate it? <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. But you know, it's like uh, Clickhole is a great uh, piss take on what things like Salon have become. And that's like the real horror of journalism is people grow up and I'm in, I talk to these people in various work contexts and different jobs. You know, like 
they think that this is what journalism is. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, you can't say that. And I usually frame it this way. And I know everyone, like, or a lot of people on the right, they hate the New York Times. It's a very, very good newspaper for what it does. I don't expect, as Matt said, certain things from it. But, you know, I would always say these things. Can you imagine that sentence in the New York Times? Now, they do say things a lot, which I'm like, hmm, interesting, yeah. especially, especially recently. But they do try. And as Jack Schaefer mentions in this piece, and everyone should read it, is Dan Ockrentz, uh, when he was the first public editor, when he said, look, in 2004, we're a liberal newspaper. And to deny it is almost, and he doesn't say this, but I kind of think this, it's almost like Fox believing that they're fair and balanced. They're not. And, you know, the New York Times can't say that we're not a liberal newspaper. That it's usually in, the, in, in, the, in, in story selection. That's usually where you get it. It's, it's in the story selection. You said something wasn't covered greatly recently. That, I mean, this show. is this is routine. On that routine shooting, in the case, right? Yeah, the, the, in, in the shooting was not was just not covered aggressively. I yeah, mean, had had the had the situation been reversed, this is uh, the shooting that was mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast with this gentleman who was uh, a member of the Nation of Islam, or at least associated, affiliated with the Nation of Islam, publicly supported and endorsed their ideas. Had that been a white supremacist who had killed three or four people. Um, I think that's a story that would have traveled a hell of a lot more. Um, it didn't travel nearly as much, but uh, but but I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to try to quantify that. I will say though, with regards to re- to the reporting of the New York Times, one, I mean, the quality has fallen off, uh, especially in the over the course of the last couple of months. Um, while uh, I think just the hysteria around Trump has has spun up. Uh, but the second thing is, I am broadly, I am broadly supportive of the notion that diversity amongst journalists and reporters matters, that the the predictable, perhaps, um, sort of concentration of media organizations in particular places has ramifications that are real, even with, as the, as the article points out, conservative media um, that finds itself isolated in this bubble, its own bubble, totally. inside yeah. a bubble here yeah. in New York City, um, where their perspective of what a progressive is, is it's only the lunatic who is burning and busting shit up at Berkeley uh, to prevent someone from coming to speak there. That is it. It is the new Black Panther Party. That is it. Um, so... In, in both senses, they're both hysterical, but there's something there's something else. I mean, look, when it actually comes to to enacting policy, to informing the populace, to to making certain that the ideas that went out um, in the in the public sphere are good ideas, are high quality ideas that people sure. have a real understanding of public policy, um, whether or not the quality of our public discourse um, in, in say the newspapers, um, is having a meaningful impact on the, the quality of our political outcomes, like people going to the polls, selecting really knowledgeable candidates on the basis of information. I mean, those really are like two different things. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of earlier this week, and I mentioned this yesterday, I did a podcast with, uh, Josh Zepps, uh, yesterday and I mentioned this, but, um, there was, uh, on Monday of this week, Barack Obama, makes his his re-entry into public life and he's sitting on stage flanked by uh, a small phalanx of uh, up-and-coming community organizers, uh, young people who just want to help. They just want to get involved in politics. And Barack Obama is describing what is wrong with America. And he has this bromide, this bromide that everyone is familiar with. Well, you know, most Americans don't vote in this country. And if you, if you would just get people to get out and start voting, we, we could fix what's wrong in this country. And I thought to myself, you're in Chicago, dude. 
Like, is that what's wrong with Chicago? That no. there aren't enough people voting? <laughs> and in the same respect, like, is that what's for wrong? For one of your guys. Who's well, running for one city. of your guys, yeah. yeah. If, if perhaps they were winning those elections by 99% and 100% of Chicagoans came out and voted, then we would finally fix Chicago. Then we would finally fund the schools sufficiently because that is the problem in Chicago. The schools aren't sufficiently funded. Not that they're operated poorly or they waste the money they have. But in either case, um, I, I just wonder about sort of the quality of the outcomes, the quality of the reporting, the the notion that, you know, maybe what will fix this is is more democracy. Um is it a little bit of wishful thinking to think yeah, that if if our if our reporting was better that we might actually get better outcomes? Because this this definitely tells me something about why the reporting is bad. But I don't know if it tells me a great deal about why certain things about our government just don't work particularly well. It's, it's important to talk to voters and figure out why they do what they do, right? And to get out there and say, get outside of my bubble. And Jack talks about that. Um, I've done a fair deal of that. I don't think I've done enough of that, but I think I've done a fair deal of it. Uh, and and the other thing that people don't talk about is to actually talk um, outside of your bubble as a reporter and mm. as, as a journalist. And what you find when you talk to a lot of uh, journalists, when, what they were upset about when Trump won was not so much that we got this wrong. How did we get this wrong? It was they didn't listen to us. I heard a lot of that. Yeah. I'm saying, you know, we reported this stuff on Grab Him in the Pussy. We recorded this stuff about, about, uh, about, you know, Trump University and bad business dealings. And I think all of that stuff is important reporting. And I think that people did a good job with that. But the second breath in that comment that I mostly heard was why did not why did these people why were they not impacted by this stuff? Right. As much as I was. And a group of people I talked to a couple weeks ago, and I did mention them on, on the show, and like kind of vaguely, is that uh, people that were of different races, uh, mostly the same socioeconomic background, um, lower middle class, people whose jobs are going away, and all of them said, we don't care about the shit that you guys care about, which is Donald Trump speaks like a gorilla. And yeah. he's like, he's he's uncouth. And he's horrible. We don't care. Right. We care we, about. We, we don't actually care that you say the things he yeah, says yeah, yeah. are racist. Exactly. They don't care. We don't. I don't know if they're racist. I don't care. I don't think he's racist. Whatever. I don't exactly. care about your perspective. You've called all of these people racist. Exactly. I'm going to vote for him anyways because I don't like them and I don't like you. Yeah. There it is. It's like when people say, you know, hey, uh, who uh, punch a Nazi was a is a great thing. It's like, well, you know, you debase the word Nazi so much. You're going to be punching a lot of people. Yeah. And that's a lot of the perspective I got from people saying. Like, look, I don't believe that he's a racist. You know, I don't uh, think about it too much either way because he could be a racist and he could, uh, you know, do what he did with Carrier and bring jobs back on X plant or Y plant. And you, I'm, you need a big asterisk. Yeah. Beside that. Well, yeah. The, do, do what he did with Carrier and bring jobs back. Which, by the way, was eleven hundred jobs. Uh, that he promised that it was 700. And then the CEO of Carrier was on TV. Never, no one noticed this. Uh-huh. was on TV with Jim Cramer, and he said was touring the factory. And then he starts talking about all the government subsidies that he got and the kickbacks, basically, because they have a lot of defense contracts, contractors. A lot of people that ship jobs overseas uh, don't have defense contracts, and there's no leverage. And then he said, we're going to basically use this money the government's giving us to automate the factory more. <laughs> and it's like, hey, guys, did Robots. You, you just got hoodwinked by, <laughs> by this very smart uh, CEO. But no, I mean, I, I appreciate their argument. I disagree with them on large economic issues. These are the people that voted for Trump. I disagree with Trump on all these economic issues. But... That said, you know, when you say, why didn't this, you know, lewd, 
horrible guy. Why wasn't he taken down? And I made this mistake once uh, on television, and I said these people are, are 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 dumb. They're voting for dumb policies. I still believe that. I, it was wrong in a way for me to say that and not kind of think of the broader context. And it did actually reek of somebody who didn't have any sense of how people lived outside. I mean, at the same time, I did determine from all of these people that at the end of the month, they had more money in their bank account than I did. Yeah, who's the, who's the <laughs> idiot now? So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no one's, I really don't think anyone's going to step in to save my job, and they shouldn't. Matt, any, anything um, more on this before we uh, uh, transition, perhaps? Yeah, just a, a final point on this. Something that I tried to do when I worked at the LA Times 10 years ago, um, which they obviously resisted uh, to the core, was uh, get the editorial board on, on which I worked um, first of all, just to have everyone have a little website bio picture. What do we look like? Who are we? That kind of stuff. But I tried to say, okay, if we really are confident in ourselves, mm. let's include the information of who we have, I don't know, voted for president. Let's just say, you know, we got 25 people total in this department, 12 or so in the editorial board back then. It's probably now down to 17 and eight respectively, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, let's, uh, let's, Let's just go ahead and be confident that, uh, that you know, readers will take it the right way and because I knew what the answer would be. And you all know what the answer would be if you did that writ large at the institution publicly. It was that most everyone, not everyone in that case, but most everyone would, would come out to be a reliable democratic vote. Uh, and they would be kind of embarrassed by the unanimity of it or near unanimity of it. And so they wouldn't want to do it. And I further argued after I lost that one. Of like, hey, why don't you do it system-wide, but as an internal thing, as a management thing? I mean, back then, at the height of its powers, the LA Times had 3,000 editorial employees. It probably has like 500 now. Um, I'm like just a, a staggering number. But if you took a poll, totally anonymous, uh, to find out who your peeps are uh, voting for and sympathizing with, what do you think you would see? We do know that donations coming from major media companies, political donations, they skew 95% Democratic. We do know that on the, on the polls that they take of reporters, these are periodic, uh, showing their sense of self-identification, party registration, or whatever. It's usually along the lines of like 80 to 10 to 10, uh, you know, Democrat, Republican, and uh, I don't know, Vulcan or something. Um, it's uh, it's it, it's completely lopsided, but we almost never hear those things. And I don't understand it from a managerial standpoint, because one of the things in journalism is that you need people to have different detection systems for what makes a story. It's a reason why I think libertarians make kind of natural journalists, in part because they come from a, a minority a way of looking at things that cuts across different. We just notice stuff differently, even if we all are not the same, even the three of us, you know, we describe ourselves in different forms and we will notice things differently. But just having some kind of uh, diversity of points of view, not in any kind of token-like way, but just so that you don't have 95% of your newsroom having the same politics strikes me as like a, it's a, as a basic reportorial function. You're going to lose stories if everyone thinks the same way. It's obvious to me and people are absolutely terrified of it. There's only three or four news outlets out there. Reason is one of them that publishes who their who their staffers vote for and it's shocking to me that they're that's not a 95% thing as opposed to a 0.01% thing. Yeah. Well, I wanted to pivot uh quickly to the um to the to the march from this from this weekend uh if if we could and I I think we talked about this in the uh, in the episode that was destroyed uh by Matt's hard drive. 
um, or at least not recorded by Matt's hard drive, resulting in its destruction. Um, but it was uh, Earth Day. Uh, this was the um, I should I should look at my notes so I can know what the hell this thing was called because uh, I forget now. Oh, the March for Science. That's not a complicated name, uh, but the March for for Science, uh, as described on their website, uh, that these these champions are uh, ro- are marching for robustly funded. Uh, and publicly communicated science is a pillar of human freedom and prosperity. We unite as a diverse nonpartisan group to call for science that upholds the common ground, the common good for political for political leaders and policy to enact evidence based policies in the public interest, uh, which sounds like a, a noble enough goal. Um, the, the general sentiment, however, um, of the entire protest may at least be hinted at. Uh, by the fact that this is something that occurred on Earth Day. Um, and while it is certainly the case that they spoke to a number of different issues, uh, vaccines for one, um, climate change was certainly prominent. Um, and there is there is this sense uh, that I get, uh, having watched it, um, that having paid attention to some of the coverage and, and listened to some of the folks who were there talking about this, um, that there is a conflating of a few different things. Uh, sort of science as a methodology and science as this concrete body of knowledge and professionals who are discerning the truth um, but with their weights and measures on any number of important issues that simply uncovering the facts about the world with these tools actually yields critical information about the world and tells you precisely what to do with it, that the data in effect is interpreting itself Um, that there is this revealed truth that comes about at the end of this process of hypothesis experiment result. And now the interpretation is just there. It's laid bare. Scientism Um, it's called often. Yeah. But that's not how it works. Um, As everyone knows, I mean, and, and they've said repeatedly, there is this process of peer review, but the reason you have peer review is because if you can't repeat this, perhaps it's wrong. And perhaps there's something that you didn't account for in your hypothesis. Um, the data can't interpret itself. And, and the, it's interesting because I, uh, I was observing the speech. I'd been thinking about uh, sort of skepticism a lot. And I was actually reading uh, Michael Shermer's new book, um, which is actually just a catalog of many pieces that he's written at Scientific America, the column that he's had there for a, num- for a number of years. Um, and the book opens with this, uh, this quote from Darwin, um, which I'm going to try to find uh, quickly unless someone else uh, speaks up and, because they know it already. Um, but it's Darwin sort of talking about um, this, this process of obtaining, of obtaining knowledge or at least understanding facts. And the quote is, uh, how odd is it that anyone should not see that all observations must be for or against some view if it is to be of any service to anyone? Um, and for whatever reason, Matt, I mean, this, this reminds me of the insight that you were just offering uh, by way of the challenge that you made at the paper. Um, let's just sort of put our biases out there. Um, that it doesn't quite bother me that people have political views and are in fact scientists. And it doesn't bother me that you attempt to use particular scientific conclusions in order to advance your perspective. Um, fine. That's good. Uh, what bothers me, however, is the, the notion that what people are actually doing when they're doing science is appealing to the Delphi. And they, they will just, the Oracle will tell us all that we need to know uh, when, in fact, this is a process of making a hypothesis. These are, this is what I think will happen. This is the outcome. Here's how I interpret it. And perhaps your hypothesis being overturned. 
which is totally a thing that happens all the time. Constantly. That is what progress looks like in science. Um, so what scientific so, history looks at like. At any rate, I'll shut up a little bit. Um, Ron, I, I would love you guys to, uh, to weigh in on this. Ron Bailey, uh, the great science correspondent for Reason, uh, had a cover story about a year ago called Broken Science um, that uh, talks about a, a, an actual problem that science is happening right now uh, that not necessarily the kind of uh, uh, more uh, you know uh, contrived uh, problem that these marches were set up to protest against. The actual problem is that uh, about half of peer-reviewed uh, science is turning out to be proved uh, false within 10 years. <laughs> There's this great mass problem of unreproducibility, even of stuff that af after it gets uh, initially peer reviewed. And so uh, the headline writes itself, uh, uh, not upworthy style, but close to it of uh, half of everything you think you know is wrong. Um, and, uh, and that is terrifying. And it's a and it's a it's a problem, but it's also kind of an indication of um, the fact that we have a, a better uh, a grand access to studies and studies of studies, and we can cross uh, examine databases and data sets and these kind of things, which is a great thing. I I am disturbed. I'm always happy to see people on the streets. That's great. Have fun. Um, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. The people I'm staying with here. Uh, in uh, in Lakewood, uh, went in uh, Long Beach, went into the march for uh, science, and uh, and a lot of people I know did, and 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 who doesn't like science? Uh, what I do, what I don't like. Well, awful conservatives little... don't like don't like science, and people who hold perspectives on things that are uh, outside of the mainstream, the consensus. I don't like the, the notion, like uh, kind of pointing to what you were talking about, Camille, uh, a notion that there is some um, mythical, like as they used to say in Central Europe in the nineties. On one hand, like we could just, if we just got a government of experts, they would finally make the right decisions. It's like you know what? Actually, the uh, the expertise will, uh, in the best case scenario, allow you to define the contours of a problem. That is so different than finding the applicability of a solution. Uh, and that was expressed uh, poignantly, uh, Camille, uh, when you and I and Kennedy were cross-examining Bill and I, the science guy, a couple of years ago, <laughs> and he thought he was arguing with a bunch of knuckle-draggers on uh, Fox about whether there is such a thing as climate change, and we pulled the rug out from underneath him by saying, okay, we accept the premise that man is contributing to the warming of the planet. Now, what about trade-offs? And he just was not prepared to deal with that because he's Bill Nye the science guy, and he wants you to know that if you don't agree with him about this, that obviously you think that God created the the earth in six days uh, and that you are, are, are terrible and a troglodyte. He was completely unprepared to have that discussion in any way, shape or form in an embarrassing childlike junior high school way. Um, and he's in, in the news a lot uh, this week because somehow he was part of a, of a YouTube video of someone dancing and doing a talking vagina this routine. Is part part of his new bill. This is part of his new uh, Netflix show. He has a brand new show on Netflix, and it is a uh, variety show that includes debates and uh, comedic antics. I, I, oh, comedic, God, I, I say terrible. in the broadest sense, meaning things, including things that are not at all funny, but are perhaps intended to be funny in some universe, perhaps a parallel universe uh, of unfunniness. But, but he is a guy, and let's be clear about this. He has recommended that people who deny uh, global warming or climate change 
um, should go to jail. Yeah, he said this. I'm well, not making this up. Yeah, this no, he was he was ago. asked he was asked the question: um, uh, Should should people who deny um, science, what should happen to oil executives who uh, who deny climate change? Um, should they should they go to jail? To which Bill Nye responds: Maybe. I mean, we, we may have to look at that. Um, yeah, yeah, we don't have we don't have to look at that. Uh, and that is actually the, the it's the opposite of science. If you're trying to shut down, if you're trying to criminalize yeah. the discussion around a scientific uh, topic. You are not a scientist. You are an anti-scientist. And that's what he and all this, this the, the rise of celebrity scientists, uh, you know, from the, the glory days of Carl Sagan. Uh, actually, one of the best uh, T-shirts, apparently, my friend was telling me uh, uh, <laughs> about uh, uh, from the uh, Science Day was someone uh, with a uh, kind of like a devil horns hand gesture saying, Hail Sagan. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, no, I Which mean, I, pretty good. I, I, from the, the march I saw, I was watching CNN, and uh, there was some lead-in, and the, the, the script in the lead-in was hilarious, and it was like uh, something about these scientists coming out and like daring to speak out. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what? Is this, has there been a war on, on scientists? The thing about this stuff and the scientism stuff, and, and, and like I – like uh, Michael Sherman, Michael Shermer. I mm -hmm. like Skeptic Magazine. I like science. I don't. I don't. I don't like the smugness that comes along with. Well, it's science, and you don't believe in science, and so therefore, as one of you said, that uh, you know, you must have uh, think the Earth is created in six days. And mm -hmm. You must be one of these these kind of intelligent design people. Absolutely not. In no way. And I think that stuff's nonsense. Um, but one of the things I notice about people who are in my kind of peer group and live where I live to, to kind of, in a way, bring it back to the kind of confirmation bias and the weirdness and the weird ideological bubbles you live in is that if you said to them something about a climate change denier or whatever, whatever the, I don't like that phrase denier, you know, redolent as it's supposed to be of Holocaust denial, uh -huh. um, but uh, a skeptic, shall we say, um, I'm not, that's not a subject that I, um, you know, pay any attention to. So, yeah, I believe the, the consensus on this, and I believe that in that sub-consensus, there's a lot of complication, that people believe that, 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 that this is happening. Um, how bad is it? What should we do? That's, those are different stories. So the, the top-line thing, and I think most of these people who are classified as, or not most of them, some of the people that are classified as deniers actually just say, yeah, it's happening. How bad is it? What should we do? Okay. They're outside of the mainstream. That's fine. I'll read them, and I don't know really what to think because it's not my bailiwick, Right. But what I always find that people, when you say that to them, is a climate change denier, a vaccine denier, and, and like, look, you know, I'm broadly on their side. Um, everybody who makes a show of how, uh, you know, enlightened they are about the science in this also believes in bad science. Always remember this. Don't think that somebody who says, you know, uh, creationism is, you know, a uh, is a pile of piffle. It is. Um, I'm sorry. That's what I believe. Uh, you know, climate change is happening. I believe that that's true, too. Uh, vaccines are not giving people autism. Yeah, it's true. That's not happening either. But the, I have had I have so many friends that are on juice cleanses, on multivitamins they don't need. And if they take in, in large quantities will harm their liver over time. There is woo woo, as James Randi calls it. There's nonsense science in everyone's life. They put stuff on their face that they think is going to make their wrinkles go away. They drink a certain type of atomized water, right? All of this stuff is nonsense. And, uh, you know, every one of these health kind of things, I see this like there's a restaurant close to me and it has like, uh, um, you know, the cancer beating smoothie. Go fuck yourself. It's not <laughs> That's not true. 
Like, I mean, is that, I mean, yes, climate change, different, different scale. Yeah. Huge existential uh, questions. Yeah. But let's kind of narrow the focus and say that as a scientist in that way that you don't think you are, but you get kind of, you know, marchy and finger waggy about it. I guarantee you that a lot of the people that I saw on that screen um, at at uh, the Science March believe in a whole host of stupid things that the science does not support. And there's no data for. Sure. I see this all the time. Yeah. And like one of those things of like juice cleanses is like, you know, you need to cleanse your body. People that read fucking goop, the Gwyneth Paltrow scam website. But, you know, we had cleanse. You know, we have that in our body. It's called your goddamn kidneys. They cleanse you. You don't need to, uh, to drink grass all day. They could use a little help every once in a while, uh, yeah, perhaps. Maybe. But, but maybe. I, I, won- I wonder about oh, one- yeah, that. that may, by the way, that indicated, Camille, that, that you that believe a little, No, that you no, believe no, no, no. this shit. I, that's just a transition. Yeah, that's no, 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 no. That was a- I, I, It's just a transition. No, no, I'm not stating my belief on that, on that fact. Wait, I, need, I need to clear the air here. What uh, anti-scientific thing- Do you believe? That you know is anti-scientific, do you believe, Camille? I don't believe in anything anti-scientific. Because you, science, science, science is a process, do, dude. Do, do, it's do all you, about observation and and the, and uh, testing, and that's I'm used, <laughs> I believe in that process. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use the word science anymore. And look, this is the the poverty of language that we use the word science to refer to 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 this like Thing. entity of yeah. scientific knowledge. Yeah. So I'm not gonna do that anymore. I will. So say you have to ask know, ask your question again. Do, do you know this is the, my it, this is my sophisticated well, I'll see, dodge? I'll, I'll see if uh, if you can dodge this one because. The most common one that people believe, that mm-hmm. I find that almost everybody I know believes, and uh, if the, oh, the people who are, um, <laughs> <laughs> if the people who are keeping uh, t- uh, track of books are still doing it, uh, read Paul Offit, who I think is the head of the medical school at Penn, uh-huh. uh, wrote, wrote a fantastic, I mean, really great book called "Do You Believe in Magic?" about you know bullshit cures and and fake woo woo and kind of the etymology of it. Um, and one of the ones he traces, which is one of my favorites, is at my office, uh, we have uh, packets of emergency. Oh, I don't uh, believe in that. Joke. Okay. Yeah. So most commonly that I yeah. know, people take, I'm going to drink orange juice. I'm going to drink an or- uh, uh, vitamin, yeah, vitamin C, C yeah. because I have a cold. There is literally <laughs> no scientific evidence anywhere. And I think this comes from Linus Powling, who yes. won two Nobel yeah. Prizes. Very smart dude. Yeah. And he won – the only man – I think he was the only person to win two Nobel Prizes who ended his life – in a mania of thinking that vitamin C could cure HIV. Could cure everything. Everything. Yeah. And and the, 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 the vitamin C for a cold is a total myth. I mean, obviously, the one, if I have to drink so many gallons of water a day and, like, yeah. you know. This, in, order, in order to lose weight. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. this stuff. There's all sorts of nonsense out there. Acupuncture. That's the, n- nonsense. There's, like, I mean, all of this stuff. Do you, do you like acupuncture? No, no. I was just going to say. Have you look, ever done the, it? No, I would not, and okay. I, I wouldn't let my wife do it when she was uh, when she was interested oh, up, in, in trying that. No, <laughs> wow. I just because I because Take I uh, Alpha was right. Look, yeah. she she has the to do what I say. Who? She's a woman. Okay, I don't want to have to put my hands <laughs> oh, on her again. Sh- oh my um, god! By, oh. by which I mean hug her. I don't yeah. understand what's wrong with you guys. What's up? He, um, <laughs> he hit me and it felt like a kiss. It's a crystals, um, crystals reference. Well, we, we don't. Written by we, Carol we King. We actually, like, do we Thank have you. to do a disclaimer where we say that we don't like actually agree with? I mean, it's pretty, women? pretty obvious that you don't. But, okay. But, All right. But, Sorry. Yeah. Um, but I did want to say quickly, evidence based, evidence based, mm-hmm. <laughs> evidence based policy um, actually seems like something that's kind of difficult to dispute. Like the need to have really good underlying science in in the in the discipline sense that we've we've 
made some observations here and tested it. Uh, the truth is not all things can be tested in a uh, very scientific way. Um, and even some things that seem like they can be tested in a scientific way, things about which there seems to be very broad consensus today, uh, may in fact not be things that people broadly uh, support and believe in tomorrow. Um, there are any number of examples of this. I mean, certainly uh, the the vitamin C mythology being based on a really, really smart guy who turns out to be a little crazy towards the end of his life and is making errors is one thing. Um, but a number of really smart people believing that you need to eat this sort of diet and we are going to officially prescribe that you should eat this sort of diet, all Americans, um, all children who go to public schools. And then it turns out that this isn't quite right. Um, sure. But that's, that's meaningful. Um, and it's not as though it's only ever been one small thing about which we've actually seen uh, meaningful change. And, and certainly, uh, it is certainly the case that one can believe that the planet is warming, that the planet is warming as a consequence of uh, human action, uh, anthropomorphic go uh, global warming or climate change. Uh, it's certainly possible that one can believe that and still not believe that it's a good idea, idea to, as uh, was uh, joked about on the, not joked about, but at least discussed. And I, I don't have a problem discussing dangerous topics, but um, I don't think people should be taxed for deciding that they'd like to have additional children um, in order to try to stave off the the threat, uh, the specter of uh, climate change. Well, uh, you, you know, your your point is a good one. Is that is that when you go to the Daily Mail, which is one of the great websites in in the world, because it's <laughs> I just get sucked into it because it's I'm like it's so many things. I literally read articles about celebrities and countries that I've never I visited. Do I do it too, and I'm like because they have like because the thumbnail picture is like yeah. somebody on a beach in a thong or something. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, <laughs> that's not I, why I do it. That's exactly why I do it. No, but I'm but the it. thing is, if you go to the Daily Mail, you can aggregate the the um, the uh, uh, new study suggests X is killing you, uh -huh. um, and there's a certain point where it it kind of makes your vision cloudy and you're like, I don't believe any of this anymore. Right. And it's like, there's somebody who said, uh, did a fake study that the Daily Mail published and a bunch of people published about chocolate. Do you remember this? Like, do you remember the scam? It was like, it was, it was kind of like, no, I might the, still believe this. Yeah. It was kind of like the, 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 a, a less intellectual version of the social tech scam, uh, in the uh, in the 90s of a guy, a, a fake postmodern paper that they uh -huh. published. Yeah. And it was just nonsense that they kind of created it one night. Um, and it was a couple of people that created a thing about ch chocolate. I think it was that it could help you lose weight if you ate a lot of it. Yeah. And it just, it's just like crazy <laughs> on his face. And they published it. And the Daily Mail was like, you know, surprise, you get to eat all the Snickers bars you want. And everyone's like, oh, that's fucking amazing. Yeah. And it was like in, in the, it was like the, the, the Institute for Health Studies, like some fake sounding thing. And people publish it and they just consume it. After a while, you just stop believing it. Hey, is any of this stuff true? You know, I mean, I, I don't, I, uh, I don't know. I just listen to my doctor. Tying, up, tying all these conversations the together, it, uh, there was a great 1990s uh, internet Jesus. newspaper called uh, tabloid.net that my uh, comrade Ken, uh, Ken Lane uh, edited. Uh, and they just had a, a standing uh, tabloid style headline whenever there was a, 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 a story like that. And it was new study proves it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, on the on the retractions, um, really quickly. It it is certainly the case that we've seen uh, a ton of those things. A, a lot of it actually has to do with the quality of the the journals, um, but not exclusively. Um, there there really does seem to be some some issue um, in in the peer review process uh, with respect to publishing things um, that 
uh, have not, in fact, been peer reviewed. Um, and there are at least folks taking steps to solve that problem. But but one of the problems for sure um, is just uh, journalist uh, newspapers running out with these study results as soon as they come in before they've even been peer reviewed, uh, which is uh, it's a little problematic. Study may there, study may suggest yeah, is a, is another is. potential highlight. And uh, anyone headline. and anyone who reads that just says study proves. Oh that's yeah, how that's they it. read it. Yeah. Why, why would you report on this if it wasn't sure. very likely true? Yeah. So yeah. there it is. Yeah. Uh, following up on on that in a, very quickly, uh, uh, Brian Doherty from Reason and. and uh, Sorry to keep plugging reason over and over again, but just high quality work. What do you want? Can we put, um, can we put that on the uh, bingo game? Matt's always like, yeah, peace and reason. Yeah, someone at reason. Do you get a kickback for this from a uh, fucking? Yeah, no, just know. his regular uh, salary. It, it, yeah. it buys me. It Which buys is one me big some kickback. <laughs> uh, uh, no, Doherty wrote a great piece about uh, uh, the study of guns and uh, the use of self defense and Second Amendment kind of stuff. He like a super super deep dive into it that I recommend people look at. And also about a year ago in the same issues that the Bailey story. Um, but one of my takeaways from it is that, uh, the root problem here for the most part is that the journalistic treatment of those studies, they just like compound any existing tilt or bias by a factor of a trillion. And that's scientific, uh, out there. Uh, and it's just amazing. And so they, they reverberate around as soon as you get, uh, opportunity to share some gun study number, some a mass killing number on Facebook, you know you're participating in pure propaganda because by that point it's been refracted so many times it's divorced uh, from all reality. Yeah. Well, we've been going for a little while. I wanted to to pivot to some idiot wrote this, um, and I've got I've got something today uh, which I'm actually going to credit to uh, strate- strate- which is a little hard to to pronounce. This is uh, it is a publication. It is an in publication by a guy named Ben Thompson. You subscribe. I think you pay like a hundred dollars a year, and he sends you emails. And Ben is like super sharp and knows a great deal uh, about the tech industry. Do, do you um, pay for this? Yeah, yeah, I pay for it. I actually subscribe. Stratechery. Yeah, yeah. It's very, you can't be pronouncing that right. Very good. S T R A T E R Y. Stratechery. Really bad name. You should, you should subscribe if you if you follow the tech industry. <laughs> if he changes the name, he we'll give him horrible. forty bucks. His his ideas <laughs> on healthcare are horrible and bad. Um, and he's not right about everything. And one day I'll talk to him about this and help him understand why he's wrong about this. But he did flag um, something from the New York Times this week, um, which is uh, this big profile um, about the uh, the CEO of Uber, who is uh, yeah. who is apparently a reprehensible and terrible man. Uh, but one of the the huge uh, discoveries in this piece was supposedly um, that Uber was using unique identifying information um, from users' cell phones. Um, even after to track users, even after they deleted the app, the the first time this is reported, I mean that is pretty much how it's presented. That Uber, that the CEO shows up at Apple, that he's talking to Tim Cook, who sits him down, um, and and apparently Uber had been carrying this out for a while. They've been people at Uber, the software programmers had been instructed, hey, keep this silent, mask this, so Apple doesn't know what you're doing. Um, and he's called to the mat, and this is a huge deal, of course, because if Uber's app is thrown out of the app store for, say, violating Apple's rules, um, this could be a huge, devastating loss uh, for Uber. I mean, it could, could kill the company. Um, when the story is silently amended later on, the story is corrected to reflect the fact that the reason that they were tracking this particular piece of unique identifying information uh, that is inside your cell phone um, 
was so that they could prevent certain kinds of fraud in places like China, where they were actually, there were folks who were cloning phones and various other unique identifying information inside of um, the the Apple payment system, um, as well as the, the Uber um, sort of order processing system so that they could manufacture fraudulent rides. Um, and you can manufacture fraudulent rides so you could say bill rides to someone who is not you, um, or you, if you are a driver, can manufacture a bunch of rides so that you can generate bonuses for yourself. Um, and it was just, it's one of those examples of super sloppy, like unnecessarily sloppy reporting um, where you are going for sort of the kill shot. Um, but in so doing, I mean, you just completely debase yourself. Like there is a story here and it's interesting. There are any number of reasons why it is important for folks to know that their unique identifying information is in fact being tracked by Uber. But there's actually a meaningful tension here in this story with them having a legitimate purpose uh, for doing this thing, which was in fact in violation of Apple's policies. Um, I don't know that I would say that some idiot wrote this, but it's certainly the sort of dim-witted, um, stupid reporting that may in fact be a consequence of the journalist simply not understanding the technology. But it's also about. this, and a question for you, Camille, and you know Matt too, is that why is it, do you think, that Uber comes in for more flack than any company out there at the moment. It's, it is the most insanely innovative technology. It is brilliant in almost way. It still shocks me that such a thing exists. And they do things like, you know, make it difficult. It's difficult to have a, you know, a subway in certain parts of New York, you know, buses are terrible, et cetera. And now they have this kind of pool, Uber pool system where you can essentially get from one end to the city and another for two ninety nine, sometimes two forty nine, anyone anywhere in Manhattan. And they're trying to kind of replace that. I mean, what is it that makes drives people so crazy about Uber? And, you know, is there sexual harassment at Lyft <laughs> or anything else? <laughs> Who knows? But there's a singular focus on uh, on interpreting every news story about Uber in the most horrible way. And people always say, this Uber driver did something horrible to a woman and this stuff has happened, right? And I know, I trust that these stories are well reported and that they're, that, that, that they're true and there are other people that report them later. No one is ever saying, you know, the TLC, like what, have women been assaulted in yellow cabs? Huh? I've been almost assaulted in the yellow cab. Sure. And there's no- You deserved it. Well, of course I did. <laughs> um, I mean, of course. I didn't, I'm, I'm not, you know, that's why the reason I'm not telling you the story. I'm just telling you the, the end bit. Sure. Um, yeah, for a friend. And there uh -huh. was no way, I had no recourse. I didn't get the hack license. I got dro drove away fast. There's all this, I mean, it's a better system in a lot of ways, but there is- a singular focus on destroying Uber. Why do you think that is? I, I have no idea. I mean, I suppose it is because this this is a, a billion dollar company and there are huge profits and there is a sense that there are little guys involved, both the people who are getting gouged, uh, as they used to say, when Uber still had their surge pricing working in a different way. There's still surge pricing. It works in a little bit of a different way now. Um, but what I find so interesting is something that you pointed out. I mean, when there are complaints about Uber's service, say the prices aren't transparent enough, people are getting billed after the fact, well, they change that. 
Now you get you know you get the billing ahead of time. Um, yeah. When there were reports of various sorts of sexual misconduct happening or drivers doing something, like they actually they take steps, they talk about it. There's at least some sort of uh, some sort of policy dispatch that happens. I uh, mean, the look, quality, it's, a, it's a market mechanism. Yeah, the cleanliness, that, yeah. the cleanliness of the cars. I mean, who are you going to cl- complain to because the yellow cab is disgusting and gross? Who do you complain to because the trains don't uh, run on time here in New York City? You can complain. Uh, might not get fixed. Um, Uber, at least Uber gives me Uber free shit time every they, time I they complain. Fix, they fix, they fix it. They give me credits, et cetera. And this yeah. is the sort of basic market mechanism here. Which is, is not it, to say it's perfect. It's not, oh, God, definitely not perfect. But but I think that's the regulatory aspect. And I always hear this Uberization of the economy as if that's a terrible thing. I ask every Uber driver when I get in, like, if they like if they're making money, if they like it, et cetera. And it's like 10 to 1 of people say, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, I get to work my own hours. I do this a separate thing, and I get a lot of extra money in my pocket. I, I hear a little more uh, a little more frustration more recently um, just because it sounds like there are a lot more people doing yeah. it. Yeah, that I mean, look, that's what it, but that it, it thins out. I mean, yeah. if, if you're not making money, people drop out, and then it becomes back to sort of the way it was of a certain number of core group of people doing it. But, but you know, the, the, the basic thing that people always forget is that, you know, would you rather have a factory in China that is run by Nike or one that is run by the Chinese government, right? I mean, if the... Oh, inf- a, that's a tough decision. Well, if the information comes out, well, there's some <laughs> sneakerhead thing in there that I don't get. No. But, but, uh, but no, I mean, if information gets out that f- people are killing themselves at Foxconn, whether or not that's a real story or if it's a fake story, but these companies have to respond because it is a public relations disaster for them. There is no such thing as a public relations disaster for the Chinese government. I would call that Tiananmen, and they really didn't care about that in the long run, is that you know these factories, they do, of course, almost always pay higher wages than state-run factories in Vietnam, and the same thing is true in China, but you know the, the slave wages, et cetera, and of course nobody thinks about, like, oh, they make, I heard this a lot a couple of weeks ago, they make X number, like $10 a day in Mexico. It's like, yeah, but... You know, what does that get you in Mexico? They're not living in, 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 you know, L.A. It's like it's living in Mexico. There is some adjustment there, please. But the response of, of Apple and the response of a lot of these companies to abuses, does that say, does that in any way mean that abuses don't happen? No, of course not. No, of course not. They never, of course, go after the governments themselves for not enforcing any sort of regulatory regime. And these are generally people who like regulatory regimes. But the thing is that's pretty obvious is that if they're getting hit with this PR nightmare, it is in their best business interest to not have a PR nightmare and not have people hopping off of buildings in their factories in another country. It seems pretty obvious to me. One uh, uh, thing to add is just that um, Uber's kind of dickish. Travis... (laughs) Travis Kalishnikov is kind of a tech bro, <laughs> yeah. uh, rubs people the wrong way. Uh, that, that is they, definitely one of the reasons why uh, they've had some some issues with the uh, public recently. Yeah, and and they're dry, they do squeeze their drivers constantly, and, uh, sure. the, and the drivers get sore because they they are taking. He reminds me of the uh, the head of Ryanair, uh, which is one of the flagship low cost airlines in Europe. Who takes oh uh, delight? Michael Robertson, I believe his no, name no, is. No, no, takes my, absolute delight in saying, "We're going to charge you for using the toilets. No, We're going to charge you money for standing up." You it's, it's by the way, it's Michael O'Leary, and they did <laughs> actually float that. It's like if you'd like to use the lunar plane, you're going to have to give us five p or piss and, yourself. Or, 
fucking piss yourself in the play. We don't care. We're going to extract everything from you. And I've been extracted. But, but by the way, Matt, I mean, the market opportunity there is in New York City, there is a new app that has very, very similar prices called Juno, in which their pitch to the rider, the ethical rider, is that they give double the amount of money to the driver. So if, if, if you get 20% or something from, from uh, taken, 30% taken from Uber, I think uh, Juno takes 15 or something, 12, 15. Mm-hmm. So they take a lot less. And these guys, every time I get in a car now, they, it's in beta, and I've used it a lot because um, the, there's a lot of available cars. And yeah. you know, I, I, I want to get the – that's great if the guy gets more money, and it's the same price for me. So, so there's been kind of a market fix for these guys getting squeezed. I don't know if it'll take off, but, but you know, it's happening. Yeah. No, there's and a, a bunch and, of them. And let's re- recognize that one of the uh, great uh, kind of story subject areas for the New York Times is to go after those aspects of the modern consumer society that liberals either do or should feel guilty about. Oh, you're going to the nail salon. Uh, do you realize that those people are basically slaves? Uh, so let's let's uh, do a, a error-riddled three-part series that uh, – well, at first was shortlisted for the Pulitzers until Jim Epstein ripped shreds into it. Um, you know, let's talk about the terrible working conditions at Amazon. Let's go after Uber. It's these little accoutrements that all of their readership enjoys and uses, but feels some pangs of conscience of it. So much of their reporting is based on that. You watch it. Like, uh, look out for it. You will never stop seeing it. I have no idea why, but I just clicked on a link for Axios. That I think it's Mike Allen. Yeah, the new, yeah, the yeah. new publication. The, yeah. se- uh, and this is incredible. The second story down is this. Juno, the anti-Uber startup, sells to Get for $200 million. And that's Get is the another Uber mm-hmm. competitor that's not hasn't been very good. I've tried it. But uh, it uh, um, apparently rescinded uh, its restic- uh, restricted stock unit program for drivers that rolled out last summer. It will send a one-time payment for participating drivers. It's actually complicated and interesting, but that uh, is apparently um, uh, an alluring enough startup to defeat and beat up on Uber that it just sold for $200 million to get. So there yeah. you go. Um, I don't know if anyone has anything else. Uh, maybe, eh, perhaps. We'll do it next time. I've yeah, got we, one some idiot wrote it. this, short and sweet. I don't have it in front of me, but about uh, eight days ago, uh, in the run-up to the French elections, Matthew Iglesias, who is Michael Moynihan's very favorite uh, commentator, love him uh, on public <laughs> affairs, uh, uh, tweeted out the, uh, the, the basically that uh, you know I looking at the you fundamentals know, I, of the I French really economy, don't. I just don't understand why people think that they're in any kind of crisis. Are you kidding? <laughs> I am not kidding. Huh. This guy who was who was the the chief economics correspondent for Slate for about a year and a half or something. I, I, I would ask Matt Iglesias what he would say if the American unemployment rate was 10%. Uh, the American unemployment rate is half that, and the German un- unemployment rate is 3.9%. In France, it's 9.6%. It's almost 10%. And, and it's I, been I mean, that way for a quarter fucking century, yeah, asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's, I mean, I just start the conversation with that. Um, you know, last year it was, it was around 10.5%. But anyway, so yeah, that's, that's a, that would qualify for somebody that wrote this. Yeah. There, <laughs> there are probably some, some good reasons if one, is, if one bothers to look, um, well, gentlemen, I, I think we've, uh, I think we've done, we've done our, our, our duty today. Um, hopefully we won't have another interruption between next week and this week. Uh, I next am week. very sorry. I, I, this is totally my fault. I believe in weakliness. We were satisfied. <laughs> we, we taped on Saturday. It wasn't easy, people. It's true. We're it's true. It's easy. Separate geographical oh locations. Yeah. We're going to do it within the calendar week, and it's because 
of the Koch brothers that my, um, my <laughs> yeah. computer didn't work. Yeah. So if any, yeah. if you're out, David, if you're out there listening. <laughs> and he is. Fr- a friend of mine recommended, by the way, if you have a uh, cocaine delivery service in New York, you should really call it the Koch brothers. That's good. <laughs> um, that's good. But, Koch brothers Coke. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty good. Good to the there last snort. Uh, that's great. All right. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't even get to talk about Kendrick Lamar next oh. time. Yeah, let's cut this out. That All right. We're done. See you guys later. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.